Hello, and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. We are your hosts. Gabe, a wine professional working in wine and spirits education. And I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as vineyard worker. And today, we are going to be talking about the most exciting of topics within the wine, beer, and liquor, or spirits, world. That being the legal system. Or at least one of the most crucial topics. It is, and it's actually surprisingly interesting, especially as we've gotten into it. We've We've found found a lot. (laughs) Yeah, we found a lot. And a lot of it stems from attitudes within Prohibition. A lot of it has good-natured intentions and some not-so-great impacts, and yet some also pretty decent impacts. We're going to tell you a bit about how alcohol production, distribution, and sale is structured in the U.S. Yes. Uh, And then we're going to give you some opinions on all of that, because honestly, there's a lot to talk about as far as how this is impacting people, how it has impacted people. Yeah. And it's not a very cut and dry topic. So even though we're not necessarily uh, highly experienced in this, we have had experience in certain levels of this structure. Yeah. Uh, And we've been talking to actually quite a few people about how it impacts them on different levels of production, especially. And it it impacts everyone, even Mm -hmm. the customer, as we'll get into here in a second. So this is something that while, yes, we're not legal scholars on how all of this is done, we do think that there are certain things that should be pointed out and stated and clarified for the sake of hopefully seeing some positive change in the industry. That would be fantastic. And especially for those of us who are craft enthusiasts, those of us who really want to support the local businesses, really want to see people being able to kind of produce something from the ground up without necessarily having buku bucks for startup. Yeah. I think some of these topics are pretty important, but let's not get super into what we think might be the impact of the podcast and actually get to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, might be overstating our, our influence <laughs> on that one. Well, yeah, I, I think it's it's more so we just want to make sure that you guys always know where we're coming from, and we never want you to think that we're misrepresenting our specializations, especially. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you guys for listening, and if you want to, please do follow us at Laidback Lush on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, anywhere where things are done online. We are likely there. <laughs> Etsy shop. Etsy shop. Our Pinterest Etsy. board. <laughs> Our Etsy is literally, we send you coasters. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. We should make coasters. We just start shipping random objects from our house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or houses, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we don't live together. Yeah, uh, we're not roomies. We're not roomies. It's too bad. <laughs> That'd make recording a lot easier. Actually. It, it would. I have to travel so far, oh. but maybe a different room because this one always gets so remarkably hot and I love my beanie. Yeah. Yeah. He does. I honestly think I've seen you in person with that beanie on more times than I have not seen you with that beanie on. Yeah, no, we're going to have to have a a reveal party because the face reveal isn't even like the big deal. It's if I take off my beanie. The the head reveal. Yeah, 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 because, you know, you know, it's on the back of my head. We're going to set up a whole VR setup where you'll be able to, you know, do a whole 360 view of Michael's head. (laughs) No, you can't curse that many people at once. Um, <laughs> anyway, but let's let's get on uh, to our topic today. The three-tier system that has been in place ever since Prohibition. Yes, specifically the 21st Amendment. Well, okay. The 21st Amendment did not establish the three-tier system. If you don't know what the 21st Amendment is, the 18th Amendment enacted 
national prohibition in the United States on the federal level, meaning all states had to observe this constitutional amendment. The 21st Amendment repealed the 18th Amendment and basically told the states, hey, you can do whatever you want in terms of alcohol regulation. The three-tier system comes into play in that part of the big problem that prohibition did really need to address, and that it, it did address in a lot of ways, even if it wasn't always ideal, was that up till prohibition, pubs and uh, bars and what have you were typically owned by producers of particularly beer and liquor. Yeah. All of it was vertically integrated. So basically, uh, to lift a phrase from the Bible, these places became dens of corruption. Yeah. There was gambling, there was fighting, there was extreme drunkenness, not in small part due to the fact that these companies were selling their product and they wanted to sell their product. So they actively encouraged as much drinking as feasibly possible, including giving out meals so you could have a beer at lunch. Again, gambling was legal, so that, you know, keeps you in the the place longer. Prostitution was a big problem there. So basically, anything that drunkenness can fuel was allowed at these places because yeah. they made a lot of money from it. Well, and not only that, there weren't laws in place that prevented family abuse or mm -hmm. from being drunk in the workplace. So you had people at very young ages getting very drunk inside of the technological dangers of the Industrial Revolution, yeah. then going and cashing their check in the exact same place that they were able to gamble, uh, engage with prostitution practices, and drink. So there was kind of an overhaul that needed it, to happen. It was a humongous social liability. Yeah, that you could call it a cultural mm. epidemic. Yes. So that being said, though, we needed a way to break this up. We yeah. needed a way to get it so that not only through several civil rights movements, we were able to stop certain abuses uh, or at least prevent a larger number of them. We were turning a culture away from a type of lifestyle that was very quickly degrading. Yeah. So the states in general adopted to help prevent that problem from arising post 21st Amendment what is called now the three-tier system. So, what is the three-tier system, and how does it help alleviate these problems? It's actually pretty self-explanatory. It's made up of three tiers. So, tier one, producers, importers. So people who make and or bring in alcohol of any type, really, because as a side note, this system applies to every kind of alcohol in the United States. Tier one, again, our producers, our importers, are people who make the wine, who have it available for purchase by tier two, which are our distributors and our wholesalers. Importers can also be in tier two, but that's one of those weird legal gray areas here, which there are many, which we'll get into here in a second. And then those people will sell to tier three, which are your retailers. So restaurants, uh, your wine shop. Anywhere where you can buy wine on the consumer side of things. This also includes e-commerce. The big hinge that all of this relies upon is that each tier can only sell to the next leg of the tier. So a producer cannot sell to a retailer, for example. 
or they cannot sell to a customer, in theory. Again, there are exceptions to this. We'll get into that here in a second. But what this was intended to do was to prevent consumers from buying directly from the producers who were encouraging that overconsumption via that vertical integration of the brewery is also the pub. They can just sell that directly down the line to the customer. They were in control of all the advertising, how it was advertised. At the time, this was a big issue. And this actually does alleviate that because now they have to sell, the producer has to sell to a distributor. And a distributor has many clients. So this, in theory, also prevents a monopolization of the market by any one producer from just buying up all the market share. And the distributors are able to get the products out to the retailers. So there's kind of a uh, check and balance inherent in the system, at least in theory there. Yeah. And all three of these tiers require different types of permits. Yes. You're going to have to have... Even state by state, that that varies. (laughs) Yeah, it it varies state by state. There are a couple of federal permits that you do have to get no matter where you go Mm -hmm. from the TTB or the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. Yes. And also, it it is very important to recognize that while the three-tier structure is pretty consistent in its uh, general form across the United States... Every state has different levels of privatization that is allowed within that structure as well. So, for example, Washington technically does not have a legally mandated three-tier system. However, it essentially functions as if it does for ease of use for trade with other states, basically. So, for example, here in Virginia, unlike in, let's say, Missouri, grocery stores cannot sell liquor. Liquor in particular has a state government-owned distribution network and retail network. All liquor in the state has to be sold, unless obviously like you're a restaurant or a cocktail bar or something. Mm -hmm. If you're a customer looking to just get liquor, you have to go to the ABC store. That that is state-mandated. And also, I mean, you can't distribute directly to a bar if you are selling liquor. You do have to sell through the Virginia ABC. Yes. So... That, again, is kind of one of those things that's flexible state by state. Some states just don't have the state-run stores or they have a hybrid where some stores are state-run, but there's also private liquor stores that are allowed. Each state adopted this system a little bit differently, uh, and that kind of leads to some regulatory issues that we'll get into here later. There are some, as I mentioned, pretty actually common exceptions to this structure. One of the most notable ones in the United States right now being brew pubs, where it's a brewery that will have a restaurant attached to it, and that restaurant can sell the beer that is produced at that location, or by that company at least, and so, to the customer. And that's actually where the distinction is right there, because it's that the restaurant is the one that's selling it as a retailer. Mm-hmm. It is not the brewery itself. Mm-hmm. So there's considered to be a kind of separate entity, and you have to pay in order to get it from the one to the other. Yeah, and there's also the other very common one. If you're a wine drinker, you can purchase wine bottles from a winery, even here in Virginia, where we have pretty strict ABC laws still. Uh, That one, I'm not sure exactly how the legality of that one works. I'm assuming the tasting room probably has to be listed as a separate legal entity, but I, I, again, I'm not a legal scholar. I don't know that for sure. But that being said, there are some exceptions 
to the model where it's not necessarily, you know, changing hands three different times throughout this process. Yet, if you were to go to that person in their tasting room and be like, hey, I am buying these bottles so that I can serve them at my bar or my tasting room, slightly different. Yes, they are not intended for resale. Yes. And also, another, at least in Virginia thing, you cannot bring any foreign alcohol onto a site that sells alcohol. Mm -hmm. So you cannot buy a bottle at, let's say, Veritas Winery and then go across the street or, well, down the road a little across the street to Afton Mountain and bring your bottle of Veritas wine that you bought and enjoy there and also buy on Afton Mountain. You can only drink Veritas's wine, you know, at Veritas. You can only pop a bottle of Afton Mountain's wine at Afton Mountain or in the privacy of your own home or hotel room or whatever you're, you're I kinda doing I kind of wonder uh, if they would allow for a bottling fee at a place, though, like Early Mountain, where there is a huge restaurant that is run out of there. I feel like that probably has to do with the license of the restaurant itself yeah. more than anything. I mean, they wouldn't. And if you go to Early Mountain and you're not trying their wine, you are being foolish. But I mean, the wines that they carry from everyone else are also very good, though. But yeah. definitely try Early Mountain's wine while you're there as well. But that being said, there are a couple of other intended and unintended consequences of the three-tier system that I wanted to talk about here briefly. As I said, one of the big drivers of the three-tier system was to tamp down on alcohol consumption overall. As we already said, overconsumption was a huge, 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 huge problem in the U.S. at the time of prohibition. So one of the big benefits that the government gets from the three-tier system is the taxes. Because taxation is very easy under this system. When you're a producer and you have product under what is called uh, under bond, basically that means that you're storing it somewhere and when it leaves the bonded area, you pay what's called an excise tax, which is also sometimes called a consumption tax. It's basically a tax on goods and services. There's another tax that happens when the distributor sells to the retailer and then you get the sales tax and sometimes an alcohol tax when you, the customer, buy the product as well. So that's all well and good for the government. I personally have no problem with taxation. Uh, but we do get into a price problem here. Yeah. So not only does the taxation drive up prices on the consumer end for obvious reasons, and this is actually also by design, the system artificially increases the price of any alcoholic beverage by the time it reaches the consumer, by a percentage amount. This can vary, obviously, from state to state and the tax rates and the legal uh, framework that each state uses, but you are looking at higher prices just by definition under this system. Exactly. Because the producer has to sell to the distributor. The distributor has to make money somehow, so they have to raise the price of that product for when they sell it to the retailer. Uh, distributors also often will offer marketing materials, advertising, all sorts of benefits to producers, which also cost money. And so that will also drive up the price. And then obviously the retailer needs to recoup their costs and make a profit. So they will raise the price by a certain amount as well. So they have an explanation for why they like this other than just having tax revenue. They're trying to say it's actually an issue of public health. 
exactly. So people will say that because of the increase in price, people will buy less because it's more expensive. Personally, I don't know what you saw. I did not see any evidence for this. I'm not saying that that means that that's not true, to be very clear on the issue. I'm just saying I don't have data to say that that is true. I did actually find a few scholarly articles on this, and to my surprise, they did find that there was less consumption, but a lot of those studies were done for underage drinkers, not for people who had the means. Okay. So the idea being that uh, any underage drinking is considered excessive, mm -hmm. which, sure. Yeah. And so with the increased prices, with people with limited resource, especially those who are underage, not only is it more likely that their parents will comply, but it's also more likely that they won't be able to purchase, even if they had the opportunity. Yeah. So there are studies that in general that that is the case. There are some things that we're trying to say, like, this is proven across time. A lot of stuff that's been done by uh, Randy W. Elder, um, PhD, indicates that this practice could actually help with excessive drinking. But ultimately, preventing people from breaking the law, I would not necessarily... That That's not the same as a family with a dad with an alcohol problem. Yeah. I mean, not to be dark about it, but like those are two very separate issues. Yeah, yeah. And not to, you know, because all sorts of people can, can abuse alcohol, but it really is kind of like, yes, you're curbing a certain type, but I'm not sure if that can be an argument. For the whole system. For the whole system. Having extra revenue? Sure. Great. That's, you know, but don't belay the issue yeah one thing to also say about this is i mentioned that this is a percentage increase in price right for most products this leads to part of the reason why there can be such a disparity between the prices of high quality and low quality alcohol wine for example a wine that might cost you 20 dollars elsewhere could easily bump up to 35 or 40 dollars just because it has to change hands that many times. And obviously, the more pricey the base price is, the higher the final percentage increase will impact you on the consumer end. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that is not super great about that. One of the other reasons that three-tier system is believed or touted at least to be very beneficial to consumers is that it is a way to prevent monopolies that is kind of uh, inherent to the system. So, if you are like Michael and myself, who, in discussing this before we started recording, found out that we both had the same exact thought when we first read about the three-tier system, was, huh, you're saying that the producers can't have monopolies anymore, but this sure does seem like that the distributors are wide open to start forming monopolies all over the place if they wanted to. Yeah. And uh, that's not in technical terms what has happened, but we are entering into what some might call an oligopoly of the market by certain distributors. So let's talk about two distributors in particular, which are Anheuser-Busch and Gallo Wines. Now, you might be thinking, wait, I thought those were producers. You are you're, correct. You're correct. But they also have companies that they own that are distribution companies. Because guess what's not limited? Your ability to be in both of these tiers. The only limit is the money that you have access to. 
Exactly, which means it's pay to play, baby. Yes. Maybe not pay to play, play to win. Yeah. So actually, Michael, do you have my notes open right now? Uh, I do, actually. Why don't you scroll down to page three of my notes? All right. So this is the top 60 leading wine brands in the U.S. as of 2021 from the Beverage Information Group. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So top brands are going to be Franzia Wine Taps, Barefoot Cellars, Boda Box, Carlo Rossi, Sutter Home. You guys probably know most of these. Woodbridge by Robert Mondavi. And the supplier in that order, the wine group, E&J Gallo Winery, Delicato Family Vineyards, E&J Gallo Winery, oh my god, mm-hmm. Trinchero Family, Constellation Brands, E&J, oh wow, E&J is mostly here. So there are 60 entries on this list. E&J Gallo makes up roughly two-thirds to a half yeah of the supplier for these brands and this is like the leader so these are nine liter cases this is how this is being distributed how it's being measured the top one being the wine group that's twenty two thousand cases of their top one franzia mm-hmm. right below that barefoot sellers e&j gala winery twenty thousand four hundred and ten cases and they're on here most of the time. The smaller ones, the ones that are a little bit smaller, they're only in the in like a couple of thousand that yeah. they're distributing. This is a massive gap between how much they are actually distributing. And Gallo is also representing most of those smaller brands as well for distribution. Exactly. So I think while that is only one piece of evidence, that does kind of disprove the notion that market consolidation doesn't happen under this system. Because we can tell just by that graph, and that's only for wine. That's not even get into Anheuser-Busch and beer. Yeah, I'll never forgive you guys for what you did to, to Devil's Backbone. I can't drink it anymore because of you. Yeah. <laughs> there is one benefit to this, though, on the distributor to retail side. And that is that unlike, uh, so if you go to certain chains of restaurants, you might notice that they only serve Coke or Pepsi products. That is because often in that distributor market, distributors are allowed to make deals with businesses and say, we'll buy the exclusivity rights to sell our product and our product only at your business. Yeah. Totally legal. You don't have to like it but that's just how it works. That thankfully is illegal in the U S Anheuser-Busch cannot go to your local bar and say, you can only serve Anheuser-Busch. Um, unfortunately what they can do is being one of the largest distributors only distribute brands that they own. So they're still making all the money from it. Um, Mm. but (laughs) you know, that, that, that's kind of a market issue, not a legal issue, but Saying all this to say, it is complicated, but I think all this weight being given to distributors in the market is actively harmful in its current iteration because market consolidation, which is where bigger companies buy up smaller companies and therefore become bigger and bigger and bigger over time, has been happening on the distributor end since the 70s. Exactly. So there's fewer distributors now, there's less competition. And one of the big features that's touted about distributors is that they provide a means for the little guy to get on the market because 
a distributor doesn't care if they're purchasing Bud Light, Coors, and Sierra Nevada, but also a handful of wines on your local market, or uh, beers, excuse me, on your local market, they still make money. And that is, in principle, true. Yeah, especially once you are up to a certain level of production. It makes sense that you would want to have a greater range. Yeah. And if those people can provide that as a service while also making money, that's the that's the market working. Yeah. And we, to be clear, have no issue with that. That's great. The problem is, is that because it's legally mandated that you do that and everybody has to enter into this, of course, larger brands are going to outcompete the smaller brands, even on the distributor market. If you have greater resource, you have greater reach. And especially if you aren't one of those people that is producing a ton of product, it, it makes no sense to pay a group in order to perform a service. But you have to. Yeah, but you have to. If you to. want to sell it. Now, Gabe brought up something that I actually didn't know about and didn't come across while I was taking my notes, where Anheuser-Busch actually <laughs> stepped in in order to stop one way that we had around this. Yeah, so we at one point had what were called, I believe it's farm wineries was the term that I was given. And that was where a winery, if you were legally listed as a farm winery, could sell your product directly to retail or to consumers. So you could sell directly to restaurants, directly to wine shops, no problem. Anheuser-Busch saw that, and they didn't like it, and they lobbied the government to nix that practice. Which means that a competitive interest was able to step in and use their massive amount of resource in order to stomp the very industry little guys that this whole system is supposed to actually be promoting. Exactly. Anybody who appreciates local craft, anybody who appreciates like the America-made sort of attitude where you want people to be able to start businesses and be able to build up from scratch, you got to see the problem that this presents. Exactly. So while for like medium to medium large brands, distributors are actually really ideal in a lot of ways, for the very small and for the very large, they just don't really make a lot of sense. Exactly. And I think that is where both of us kind of agree that while we recognize that there are certain advantages to this system, for example, one pretty unambiguous good is it's actually much harder to sell counterfeit goods on alcohol markets in the United States because you have to have authenticated, legally recognized bodies that are selling to one another. In European wine markets in particular, wine fraud is a really big issue, especially for fine wine. Mm -hmm. And they don't have as many legal safeguards like the three-tier system that can tamp down on it in the same way that is kind of baked into the system that we have here in the U.S. So that's a good thing, right? Yeah, that's a consumer protection. That's a consumer protection. Again, we're not trying to say that there's no benefit to this distributors are a good thing as a service. But when they become more than a service, which is what they seem to be right now, they can become a problem. Yeah. And I will say, in my research, um, this problem seems to be most pronounced among beer, particularly where Anheuser-Busch is concerned. I know we're talking a lot of trash on them right now, but they're the name that kept coming up for me. Oh, they're the big kid on the playground. Yeah. But 
with wine, it seems that distributors are a little bit more focused on relationship and building connections. Now, I'm sure Gallo doesn't care about that. Um, but there are some other ones that are quite respectable. And I think that it's good that under the framework, there seems to be very amicable relationships happening. But our problem, I think, is, well, should that be legally mandated then? Yeah. Couldn't this be something that allows people to use this as a service, especially now that it's been set up? Because you're not going to get rid of distributors. Yeah. But to mandate it for those that are trying to get it into the market or to mandate it for those that the joint plan of both companies when it's a producer and they are also capable of creating their own distributor at that level it's the same company yeah essentially it's just a different legally defined entity so you're not really doing what you want on either front when it's legally mandated and we think that that would actually pretty much solve the problem just don't legally mandate it yeah Unfortunately, that is so much easier said than done. I don't know what you mean, Gabe. <laughs> well, uh, I guess you're saying that because you have the lobbying money in order to uh, affect that change. Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd definitely be able to stand up to Anheuser-Busch right now with all of my resources and uh, and lobby against the thing that's going to give them their bottom line. <laughs> yeah. I do also want to say that I think one of the big problems that distributors in theory solve, but in practice do not, is remember back at the beginning of the episode when I said that each state has their own legal framework for the three-tier system? This means that let's say you're on the border of North Carolina and Virginia, right? If you want to sell your wine to North Carolina, you have a whole other set of very complicated regulation that you have to go through if you want to get your wines on those markets. There are lawyers that literally like study alcohol regulation in an attempt to like help litigate these cases when they arise in court. I think also simplification on the federal level would help streamline things a lot as well. Mm -hmm. Because interstate commerce is a big hurdle in the alcohol industry. Now, if you're going to a state that has, you know, more lax regulation, you're probably fine. But there's a lot of online retailers that don't sell in Virginia because our laws are so restrictive. And I do think that, again, taking the legal mandate out of a lot of these things would help a lot towards making things easier on the consumer end to get wines or uh, beers or liquors from smaller brands, more boutique brands. And there are distributors that focus on those brands. But again, if they're not in your state, you're kind of SOL there. And I think it would be a lot better if we were able to have a little bit more ease of access. Because again, that's the whole thing that this is supposed to do, right? Is distributors give you access to all these brands. And it's exactly. like, some of them do. Absolutely. But again, you might not have access to that distributor because of your state laws. Exactly. So in the end, it's like, this is starting to cause a lot more problems than it is actually solving them. And taking away the legal mandate actually would allow for the service to do what the service is supposed to do, which is a very strange 
circumstance where the market actually would just sort itself out, we think. I, I do think there's one concern that I would have, and that is consolidation ramping up under the producer side. But the problem is, it's like it already kind of has, you yeah. know, especially on the beer market and the wine market, because Gallo also owns basically every uh, kind of like bottom to mid shelf mass market wine you can think of that you see in Food Lion. Gallo probably owns that wine under the production side of things. However, if we had better antitrust and anti-monopoly laws in the United States, I think that would also solve a lot of that problem. There's a lot of hurdles that this would take, but I feel like it would be beneficial. I do as well. And that that is where I can see the argument in the pro three-tier system. Not necessarily because I agree with it, because I'm like, well, there's another solution also right there, but it's it's hard to achieve. And undoing the pro, mandate yeah. would be hard enough on its own. And dismantling pro-trust laws. Yeah. I don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon either. Yeah. There you have it, though. Unless, is there anything else that you wanted to go over? Um, not really. I think I've I've said my piece. There's a lot of smaller scale stuff that concerns me, but I, I think that would just, you know take too long to yeah. litigate all that in a podcast episode and probably wouldn't be terribly interesting to listen to either if you're ever curious about how all of that works and why we have that all separated out there you have it a very brief overview probably one of our shortest episodes that we've ever done well we're at 40 minutes recording time so it's yeah. not terribly short yeah, it's not terribly short the tequila is okay. the shortest by far because that one was like 15 minutes i believe nice yeah nice yeah uh, if you guys are curious, though, on some more of the happenings that led up to this system being put in place, please do go and listen to our Prohibition episode. I think we've actually mentioned this one like three or four times in the last three or four episodes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why it keeps coming up, but it does. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's almost like it was the biggest thing that happened in alcohol in the U.S. Yeah, and obviously it still impacts us to today. Exactly. We might, we We do need to revisit it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so what did we want to do for our next episode? Well, uh, I know we had thrown around another bad alcohol episode. There is always that option. Yeah. You know we that I don't mind a little. Quite a while. Yeah. And we, we don't mind a little torture here at Laidback Lush. Just a little. Just a little bit. A smidge. For, for flavor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why not a bad alcohol? So give us your best suggestions for a bad alcohol episode. What is just the thing that makes you gag? Honestly, anything banana flavored. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, is is going to be pretty oh. bad. Um, there are a couple of premixes that are pretty bad. I wonder if that peach wine is still at the liquor store. Oh, that God, we saw last that's time. right. I forgot that that existed. <laughs> I normally just edit out the bad stuff in my memory. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we'll be looking around. We might have to tweet out a poll or something. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a couple more ideas in my head that I don't want to say live. Oh, I see. I'm on I the see. build the uh, anticipation. And that's all the time that we have for this podcast. <laughs> Thank you guys once again for listening. We hope that you had a great time. Please do follow us at Laidback Lush on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Yes. And we will see you in the next episode. I have been Gabe. I have been Michael. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. <laughs>